0: This is Limitless Possibility, I'm Luc-Olivier Dumeblé. And I'm Yannick Mingan. And what's the topic
1: for this week, Yannick? Designing video games for handheld systems. Ooh,
0: but before we start, I know we have some follow-up. I think we have a long list for this episode. And I'll start because mine is somewhat quick. So in last episode, I talked about my experience with the Lime Scooter in San Jose, during my stay in uh, San Jose for WBC. And thanks to special listener Chuck Snyder. Uh, he sent me a link from the Globe and Mail, and it seems that LimeBike is looking to implement themselves in Toronto. Nice. Ooh, 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 ooh. So it seems that, according to this uh, Globe and Mail article that will be put in the show notes, uh, that Lime is trying to talk with city people and see if they can... Uh, come to toronto so it seems that some of those uh electrical scooter startups have their eye up north too and that's it's i'll say i'm glad to hear that i'm not sure if i'll regret saying that in a couple of months or weeks if it happens to montreal but um we'll see because uh from my experience with uh at, at san jose i love the lime one compared to the birds one and if I recall correctly, that's Lime as a subscription service, which seemed to me be to be a bit cheaper for a local residents and not to pay as you go. So who knows? If they come to Montreal, maybe I'll try a one-month subscription to see uh, what it is all about.
1: Maybe I would have to go to Montreal to actually go try out these famous scooters. Ooh,
0: we could make that a live episode too. Too, 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 too. And I would have
1: to wear a helmet.
0: Ye- yes, I
1: would probably hurt myself on the scooters. <laughs>
0: That's fair point. That's a fair point.
1: Okay, let's go through your list. Okay, uh, first of all, breaking news! Beep 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 beep. Uh, <laughs> you heard me uh, freaking out about this before we started recording. Uh, a friend of mine has been paying attention to the news out of Anime Expo, which has, I believe, it started today as we're recording this, and uh, you know which is a game we just talked about on episode 44 about Japanese home computers, which is a historically relevant visual novel, science fiction, time travel, visual novel, where you're also dating cute girls, uh, is getting a North American release for the first time. Officially. That is all I know. Literally all the news I have about this is, you know, NA release and lots of exclamation marks in my, uh, instant messages, but it's happening. So that is really cool. Um, and it's, it's surprising because you know has never really been released anywhere in north america um before this there was a fan translation years ago but that was all that there was and um since last time when i went to japan i went to the uno 25th anniversary event uh where i briefly appeared on stream for some reason and uh there they announced the project to actually turn it into a manga and an anime for the 25th anniversary. And I believe it's probably a tie-in with that uh, because they probably want the anime to go up on Crunchyroll. And what's the point of having just the anime if the game isn't coming out in the West? So it's coming out on PS4. Uh I don't know if they're doing PC, but at the very least PS4. Um Don't know when because I haven't checked the details yet. But very exciting news if you are a weird Japanese weeb like me. Episode 57 on Mac Automation Technologies, uh, we talked about JavaScript automation for OS X, and this week I found a GitHub project called JXA Userland, thanks to a fellow jailbreaker by the name of R Plus in Japan, um, and basically what this project does is it integrates JXA, uh, J- JavaScript for Automation, with Microsoft's TypeScript running inside of Node.js, and what this gives you is if you use a text editor that is compatible with TypeScript, you get Uh, auto-completion for Apple events, which basically is unheard of because Apple Script, Script Editor is a fucking joke. And the support for JavaScript isn't much better. Uh, The closest thing you can get to this is to export Objective-C headers from your application and automate it with Scripting Bridge, which is a lot of trouble to actually automate stuff just to have code completion. This is far more pragmatic. So if you're interested in automating... OS 10 stuff, or I guess Mac OS stuff, uh, using JavaScript and want to do so with uh, types and auto-completion, then go check out JXA Userland on GitHub. Next up, on episode 66 about WWDC 2017, yes, 2017, not 2018, we're doing a retro episode today, um, I found another GitHub project that contains a list of links out to core ML conversions of publicly available machine learning applications. Lang- machine learning models under various licenses and there is a huge range of stuff uh, on this page uh, i found one that might interest you which is a car brand and model recognition engine from photos that Ooh. you can take which is really cool and of course if you're a weeb like me uh you just want to upscale illustrations of anime girls uh so why not do what? so with a conversion of waifu 2x uh, for ML, which lets you upscale anime illustrations in a much higher quality because it is tailor-made to upscale anime girls um, so cool stuff. Uh, in fact, like this is a bonus tip. There is this page on GitHub, which is just called awesome. And it links to a bunch of other projects whose names start with awesome. And they are just big collections of links and GitHub projects to various resources for developing with basically any technology that exists. So if you are interested in learning a new technology and you don't know where to start, go check the awesome page on GitHub and you can probably find a very good guide or at least links to other guides uh, that can help you get started. Unfortunately there wasn't an Alexa page I looked. so. But cool stuff happening there. And last but not least, on episode 89 about micro.blog, we talked a little bit about Sunlit, which was a photo blogging tool for app.net, which later got converted into a photo blogging tool for micro.blog. Um, last week Manton Reese posted a preview of what is coming in Sunlit 2.2, and surprise, surprise, the first tab of the application is becoming an Instagram-like feed of the people you follow on micro.blog, except they're in reverse chronological order. So... That's cool. It comes just in time for my trip to Japan. Hint, hint, wink, wink, which you can go follow my photos at micro.blog.com. I'm pointing down like I'm doing a YouTube video, but I don't know why I'm pointing down, because there's no description yeah, down there.
0: And also, people don't see you pointing down. Now that they just heard, heard you pointing down, I guess, but...
1: You can hear the nice wind of my fingers pointing down to the description that doesn't exist. Down to the show notes. Uh, and uh, I-, I was particularly concerned because I'm going to have a data cap on my Japan trip uh, that it would do like Instagram and load every single image in the background for fun and eat your data plan. Instead, it doesn't do that. It lazy loads the image. Uh, I asked the developer directly, which is fun when you can do that, unlike Instagram where you can ask things into the void and no one ever answers you. Um, so very excited about Sunload 2.2. I hope it comes out like in the next week because I'm leaving next weekend. And that is all for my follow-up. Ooh, I guess now we will
0: be talking about
1: designing
0: L Elkane.
1: Yep, and first I want to talk a little bit about why this topic.
0: Yeah, that, that, that I, I know you were, like, hyping this topic uh, to me, and it seems super interesting, but I didn't get to why, and you kind of waved around my question about asking
1: why that topic just now? But... Okay, so handheld systems have promised for the last 15 years that they would be at parity with console games. And you might think, really? 15 mm. years? But the PSP was announced 15 years ago. It doesn't seem that long ago, but It's 15 years ago. So when the PSP was introduced in uh, 2003, Sony claimed that the same software authoring tools could be used on the PS2 and on the PSP to make the same game on both systems. In practice, we never actually saw any direct ports from the PS2. Like, yeah, I don't think it happened once. I think EA appeared in a video once and said, we might be using this to port Madden one day. And then they never released Madden on the PSP. So (laughs) what happened there? We will never know. So, A lot of people basically forgot that this was said, but they said it, and a couple months ago uh, Digital Foundry did a revisiting of the PSP uh, introduction keynote, and that's where I sort of picked up on it again, because I had forgotten this. I was still in fifth grade at the time, uh, so I didn't really pick up on this. When the PS Vita was introduced in 2011, Sony yet again claimed that this time the same software authoring tools used for PS3 development this time could be used to cross-develop for the Vita. Now... There were quite a few lower budget and or indie games with releases on both systems, but the only big budget game I can recall actually using the cross-development support in the PS3 uh, development tools was the Metal Gear Solid HD Collection. And I think a lot of the other games that you saw that had cross-releases on PS3 and Vita were not explicitly using uh, cross-development support. They were using something like Unity, which basically could spit out a binary on both already, and therefore the support that was built into the PlayStation SDK that AAA developers use basically went unused aside from Metal Gear.
0: You know what, Enik? I'm super excited now. I was <laughs> excited before, and now I'm super excited because I think this episode will transform itself into a uh, you and I are crying about the Vita.
1: Mm, not so much. Uh, the crying about the Vita is coming right up next in my notes. Which oh, really? Is, wow. Yes. I'm. I'm well-timed. That's good. Yep, yep, yep. So in, in 2018, we find ourselves in a very unique position when it comes to the handheld gaming market because PlayStation Vita is dead everywhere outside of Japan as both systems and game cartridges have stopped being manufactured. Right now, the only way you can do anything on the Vita right now in North America is to release it digitally. And very few people are doing so. Uh, I hope the people who backed the Bloodborne, uh, not Bloodborne, Bloodstained Kickstarter uh, will be able to get Bloodstained on Vita before Sony decides we're not doing Vita digital downloads anymore. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, but today, the Nintendo Switch is the only relevant handheld system on the market, as much as it pains me to admit it. Um, and the Nintendo Switch is uniquely positioned as a hybrid between a traditional home system and a handheld system with no distinction between titles played in one environment or the other. Furthermore, as the handheld market shrinks, many games that have traditionally been released on handhelds are being released on home consoles with changes to make them a better fit for playing at home. But besides obvious constraints like screen size, that does imply that there are different design constraints in place when choosing between a handheld system and a home system. And in this episode, we'll be talking about what those design constraints are and whether or not it's possible to design a game that feels at home in both environments or if the promise of the PSP, the Vita and the Nintendo Switch ultimately leads to worse games. Uh, and also, uh, another thing that we're going to briefly explore is whether cultural differences in play patterns are likely to impact how this strategy is perceived in the West versus in Japan. Spoilers. Yes, of course. <laughs> we wouldn't, do, you wouldn't do the comparison if it were the same, right? Uh, right. So this entire episode revolves around this theory that I came up with, uh, while I was taking a walk a couple of months ago. It's, I call it the focus level theory. Basically, I'm going to give you five different focus levels in quotes. Which are different situations in which you could be playing video games. So, level five is total immersion. Think of a weekend night at home by yourself where no one will criticize you for playing the same game for six hours straight. Spoiler, I don't have an internet connection in my apartment right now. This has been me all week long. I've been playing (laughs) Dragon Ball Fighters all week long, all night long. But, yeah. Level four... Reasonable possibility of interruption. Did you order a pizza you're waiting for? Can your partner come up and interrupt you while you're playing? This is level 4. You're not fully immersed, but you're mostly immersed. Level 3 is where stuff starts being a little bit more interesting. Let's say you're in transit with a known destination. There are environmental distractions from being in a public space. There's a destination, and you know roughly how far away it is, but it's not far enough for you to It's far enough for you to not worry about focusing on your game uh, more heavily for a given period of time. Then you've got level two, which let's say you're in transit, but your destination is imminent. There's much more of a need to pay attention to what's going on around you, and you're rapidly approaching the destination. You don't want to overshoot it, miss a transfer. You also know that there's some kind of time constraint before you have to stop playing. And then there's level one, which is kind of a weird one because it's very different from the first four, which is... I call this on-device multitasking. This is like other things on the device you're playing games on are actively demanding your attention. And this focus level mostly exists for phone games, um, but I guess can technically also happen on console games if you have someone spamming an active message thread in the background and you keep getting notifications. It's basically like this is the distracted by notifications focus level on whatever system that is. And really what it boils down to is that each environment, whether it's console, PC, handheld game, mobile game, there's a sweet spot where you want to be aiming your game to be playable at. Console and PC games really want to have most of their in-game activities tailored to level four and level five. Um, A lot of online games these days practically require level five focus because there's no means to pause a game when it's in progress or exit a game gracefully without the risk of penalties on your account.
0: Yeah, I would say that most online game these days are level five because they like they know people abuse that in previous games where they would just like quit the game or exit just to keep their ratio up and reaching keeping a golden ratio, I would say, and now they just like. If you disconnect by accident in the meantime, uh, in the meantime, it, it will, like, the game will yell, nearly yell at you when you come back. I think Splatoon is a good example of that is when you get disconnected. They're like, nope, 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 nope. That's bad. You shouldn't do that. If you start, if you do that too much, uh, we'll kick you out. I'm like, Wi-Fi just caught. That happens. It's on the Switch. So that, that was a bit like, I understand why you do so, but at the same time, like, it's a bit extreme for the first few time it happens, I would say.
1: Yeah, and I think this is something that parents have to get used to, to a certain degree, because like, we all know like, parents are going to call over their kid and say, stop playing, come eat dinner. And if you're in the middle of a 15 to 30 minute ranked game in multiplayer, you can get banned from the game if you actually quit the game too often. And if you get banned from the game, like the $80 you spent on the game is basically burnt. Like, Of course, there might be single player, but if you're primarily buying a game for multiplayer, like you just lit up $80 on fire. That's if you haven't spent any money on microtransactions on top of that, right? And trying to make parents understand this thing that they think is just a game can actually end up in getting banned permanently from this game is a weird thing that they didn't really have to deal with back in our day when we were young and all games could be paused because there was only a local multiplier, basically. Okay, next up, phone games should practically assume that they're going to be getting level one focus because, let's admit it, nobody enters Do Not Disturb as they start playing games on their phone. Actually, I'm going to say there's an exception to nobody. I do this, but nobody else does this. Um, You do that? Well, I play music games, and the problem with music oh. games is it is much easier to accidentally tap something that comes up on screen because you're just doing it to the rhythm and not paying attention to what's on screen. Um, so I guess that is a special case, but for the most part, case. people do not... Enter Do Not Disturb. It is super easy to accidentally tap a notification as it comes in, and that takes focus away from the application. And this is probably why most phone games tend to feature a synchronous multiplayer or are turn-based with reasonable turn length limits. If it's multiplayer at all, if you're playing a single-player game, like, who cares? Um, but yeah, that's pretty much how phone games work. We're not going to talk much about phone games at all this episode because that is so different from traditional gaming and there's less overlap between handheld and console than there is between handheld and mobile so we're just going to put that aside for now but i'm mentioning it mentioning it in passing so where do handheld games come in on this focus level theory so handheld games can be enjoyed at any focus level basically between two and five And what's really interesting is that there is a cultural angle to this. In more car-centric cultures, the focus level tends to skew higher because handhelds are more heavily played in the same sorts of environments that home consoles could be played in. And especially for the Switch, I see a lot of people who are using it as a portable console and not so much as a handheld that is played in more public spaces. Uh, In transit-centric cultures like Japan... The focus level tends to skew lower because they're more heavily played in higher distraction public areas like on transit, cafes, restaurants, while waiting at a train station, etc. The inverse is also true. So the length of your commute and how busy you are in life in general also plays into what you expect out of your home consoles when you're playing games. If you have a really long commute or have relatively little time to spend at home playing games, you are going to be much angrier about games that waste your time with low focus activities than someone who can, like me, dump five hours a night into a game with no real consequences and what's interesting is that the tension between western car centric culture and eastern transit transit centric culture can be extremely hard to navigate for game developers when it comes to deciding the future direction of a traditionally handheld series we will return to this in a bit okay so now i've laid out the theory i've laid out what the how the theory applies to these platforms how does that apply to the games on those platforms Handheld games need to be more flexible than console or PC games in the amount of focus that's required to play them. At any point in the game, there should be at least one thing you can do that is best suited to a specific focus level to ensure that the game can be played in any environment at any time. So, how do you design lower focus activities? Well, it turns out that we're actually, as humans, more willing to forgive more mundane and repetitive content in handheld games if it allows us to continue to play it in a lower focus environment, then, if we're playing the same exact game on a home system. And the reason is simple. When we're in transit and playing the game on a handheld system, we're too busy being distracted by the rest of the environment to give any thought to the what we're actually doing in that moment. Whereas when we're at home, all we have to do is either focus on the game or focus on what it is we're doing in the game and how it makes us feel. And if you feel like you're wasting your time, you are very aware that you are wasting your time when you are in a level five focus situation. A very good classic example of this is grinding in JRPGs. A lot of people try to revisit JRPGs and find grinding incredibly tedious and find themselves inevitably abusing emulators' fast-forward features. Or what happens a lot of the time if you're not playing on an emulator is people will just play the handheld version because it's a lot easier to fit grinding into your life when you have lower focus dead space throughout the day where you can take out your handheld and play a little bit and fit it in that way. I've heard of people revisiting final fantasy one, final fantasy two on the wonder swan plug for Swan Song here, uh, where they were playing the wonder swan version back in the day because it was the only handheld version at that moment. And that is how they beat the game because they could never actually bring themselves to sit in front of a computer or, a NES at that time to actually play final fantasy one because there was too much grinding, but when they could do it on the Wonderswan, they actually got through it, because while they were watching TV, they were just mindlessly doing the grinding on their Wonderswan.
0: Yeah, and then I personally experienced that, even if my point will sound moot when I'm about to say it, but uh, in my save that I never completed in uh, Personal 4 or Golden on the Vita, one of the main reasons why I was able to experience that game at all was because of the Vita version. So I was able to just play in between classes at that time since I was still, since I was still at university in CGEP, uh or during somewhat of the transit depending on which city I was uh, but if I were able to dump maybe 30 40 I don't re- recall how many hours I dumped in that game but the main reason was because it was mobile it was at that time way harder for me to just spend time in front of the TV and just enjoy mobile games or NL games excuse me.
1: Yep, and I can say that like one of the main reasons I haven't really progressed since last year in Persona 5 is, well, aside from the highly dark tone of the game, which, especially with recent events, has not made me want to play it, uh the fact that I have to sit in front of the PS4 is a limiting factor for me when I know I have 50 hours left to play in that game, and I'm like how much of this is going to be grinding in front of the television that I could be doing while I'm on the bus or doing other things that is basically blank time throughout the day. It feels like a bad use of time if I'm using the time I'm at home playing this console, basically grinding for levels. Another good example of one of these lower focus activities that get pushed into handheld games is fetch quests. Um, So this is something I talked about recently with regards to Monster Hunter. Uh, One common complaint from North American Monster Hunter players is the abundance of item-gathering quests throughout the series. Monster Hunter Generations, which is the last 3DS version, had a ridiculous amount of item-gathering quests. In fact, I'm trying to 100% Monster Hunter Generations because I love this game so much. And I hate the new Monster Hunter so much. And that's why I went back to the old one and I'm trying to 100% it. But... I won't lie, there is a huge amount of item-gathering quests to the point where I think even I am starting to get tired of them. But the reason they're there, I keep trying to explain this to people, is that ultimately you're going to need to gather those items anyway to craft consumable items that you use up constantly throughout the game. And it's a good way to fill a nice five minutes of time while you're on transit. And you're making meaningful progress towards the overall quest completion, which is good if you're like me and trying to 100% the game. And you're getting, quote, free items for your uh, future quest in exchange for that five minutes of time. Uh And yes, if you're sitting at home in your chair and you're saying, wow, I have 35 fetch quests left to go in this game, you're like, I don't want to spend 35 times five minutes. Uh, doing that when I could be doing actual fighting monsters and stuff that is more interesting. But when you're in transit, you might not necessarily have the time to fight a full monster, uh, before you have to get off the bus. And therefore fetch quests are good for that. And like I went on my old commute, I used to be able to fit four or five fetch quests per commute, uh, which was pretty good. And then I got home and I did a couple monsters and then my 3DS battery was dead, uh, which is the unfortunate reality of the 3DS. My battery is horrible these days, but Fetch quests are a great way to basically diversify the kinds of things you can do in the game world while demanding less focus from you than what you would need to do the main activity in the game. Aside from designing activities specifically tailored to a focus level, one other very important thing is your game's interface readability. Uh, So I'm going to give two examples of this. The first is Fire Emblem. Fire Emblem, of course, we've talked about it numerous times on the show. It's a turn-based strategy game where units on the battlefield fall into different classes that each have different stats, such as how many tiles they can move around on the map uh, per turn, uh, the range at which they can attack from, what kind of damage they deal. All of these things are things that play into your tactical decisions. And on handhelds until now, the limitation of being stuck to low-resolution pixel art for character sprites meant that artists had the freedom to exaggerate certain features to make each class have a distinctive silhouette. This made it much, much easier to make the right decisions on the battlefields, because two characters may look very similar when they're shown up close in combat animations, but the sprite that represents them on the map when you're making combat decisions doesn't have to adhere strictly to what they look like. Meanwhile, in console versions of the game, on the GameCube and the Wii, Characters were represented by lower polygon models of the same character model that is used in combat animations, which means when you're looking from the overhead camera, they are not as readable as they are in the handheld versions. Now, traditionally, this hasn't been a huge issue because when you're playing the console version, you're meant to be playing in a higher focus situation, and therefore you can take the time to parse the battlefield. However, the upcoming Switch Fire Emblem game is adopting the same exact approach as the console Fire Emblem despite being playable in a wider range of focus levels. And this makes me doubt how good the game is going to be when played in handheld mode on the Switch. And it was the immediate turnoff when I was watching the E3 Nintendo preference, where I was like, holy shit, it's Fire Emblem! And then I saw the UI, and I saw they were doing the same mistake as in the console game, and I'm like, no! Why did you ruin Fire Emblem? So that's one thing. Now the next example is Monster Hunter World, of course, uh, which is the new Monster Hunter game that I said I didn't like. Uh, it's a weird case because it has a console series that went exclusively handheld for like five years and then decided to return to consoles again with Monster Hunter World on the PS4. And when I mentioned the cultural uh, differences earlier, I was mo- mainly talking about this game as a great example of it. A lot of the complaints from North American Monster Hunter players who were playing handheld versions because they had no other choice, were addressed to make the game more tailored to high-focus environments. Problem is, they went a little bit too extreme with that, and I find that Monster Hunter World is incredibly mentally exhausting to play, even in high-focus situations, and I basically can't play it for more than 30 minutes at a time. Whereas, I can play my entire 3DS battery life, so, let's be honest, like two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> wow, big difference. Yeah, I can play, like, the entire battery's worth and still want to play more. And there's a big, big difference. It's very mentally draining to play that game. And it's clearly meant to be played in focus level 4 and 5 situations, but there is so much noise in the user interface while you're ostensibly trying to play the game that it drags my personal focus level down to 2 or 1 because of how distraction distracting the interface is. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I complain a lot about this stuff elsewhere already. Uh, so if you want to hear more about Monster Hunter World's weird user interface and stuff, uh, I was on a two part select button podcast about Monster Hunter that you can go listen to if you want to have like four hours of us talking about this. Or, or there's probably you could go read the select button thread where I make some of the same points and that can be read faster than four hours. But yeah, so those are the two examples I wanted to have about interface and focus level, like, you really have to take into consideration your interface because a good interface can make a game that is normally higher focused, playable at lower focus, but you can also really screw yourself in the opposite direction and make a game require too much focus that even focus level five can't give you. Uh, For more about how interface design can make your games more playable at lower focus levels, go read Building Games That Can Be Understood at a Glance by Zach Gage, which is a very popular iOS game developer. You've probably played one of his games already. Uh, He did really bad chess, which is one of my favorites. Interestingly enough, the URL slug for uh, this presentation is Designing for Subway Legibility, which basically just adds onto the pile of stuff that I said that this is imperative for games that are played in portable environments you want your games to be legible in all situations so we will end this episode with my plea to game developers and then I'll open it up for general discussion because I know we're short this episode if your game is targeting the Nintendo Switch Please try to design for handheld first when designing your game, as that makes you more flexible from the start than if you're designing a game for console first and then trying to fit it for handheld. By that I mean, have things that are spread across the entire focus level spectrum instead of focusing all of your activities into a narrow slice of that spectrum. If you want to offer a critical path through your game that is generally demanding a higher focus level, be sure to offer a side content at a wider range of focus levels as long as the focus level of your critical path ramps up throughout the game instead of forcing your users to be at focus level 5 every time they want to progress the main storyline, basically. Um, players might not necessarily understand why they do so, but they will naturally gravitate toward whatever activity is appropriate for the focus level they find themselves in. And in fact, this entire theory of focus levels came out of me trying to understand why I play certain types of levels in certain locations over others, and this is sort of the justification I have come up with. I do want to say that Nintendo has been doing generally a good job on this front, and you might not have even noticed it, because Zelda and Mario's focus on world exploration on the Switch is not an accident. Exploration is great because it means it can happen at your own pace. There typically isn't an imminent threat while doing so, and it's perfect for lower-focus situations. Collectathons, such as Mario... Uh, I was going to say Mario Ultimate, but that's not it. Mario Odyssey. Uh, you can collect all the moons. It gives you the satisfaction of progressing towards a goal, which is literally just a number going up. But the challenge is generally getting to the collectible itself through Inter- interesting level traversal techniques or whatever and it generally doesn't put you in any kind of time pressure or does so very in very limited ways um, I don't know about Mario Odyssey specifically because I haven't seen much of it but like in Super Mario 3D Land and 3D World there are like the red coins or the blue coins that you have to collect them all in a certain given amount of time and that makes the collectible show up you have like 15 seconds to get them all um, so you have very limited cases where that kind of time pressure is there but in general it's just here is this orb and the distance get to the orb and how you get there is up to you it's funny
0: that you mentioned odyssey if you recall my episode about my review of it uh one of the, the first one of the main complaint i had against the game was that the storyline that lets you progress and does the main goal is really to collect the moons, right but keep up with the story it ends up quickly in the number of moons you need to gather to be 100% compared to I would say like Mario uh, Super Mario 64 where when you complete the story arc you're like maybe I think it's 85 90% there to complete all of the stars and then you just need to spend 10 more percent and then maybe not in time but at least in number of stars to collect to be to the maximum compared to uh, Super Mario Odyssey I don't recall the exact number I think I mentioned it in my episode but it felt to me it's at least like a third or like 40 percent there so you really need to be motivated to be like a full completionist to just complete the game and the game is good but and I love it but since i completed the story arc i kind of never went back or maybe i went back once mm. and that's where i feel that a lot of people that are like me that they're not completionist by naturally but when the story arc pushes you to become one and you're like oh i'm nearly there and just missing like 10 percent of the whole the old count of stars i can like find the inner energy in myself or just like the motivation to just say I'm nearly there let's continue compared to something like Odyssey where you're just not even halfway there like why Why do I bother
1: yeah and like in Odyssey like correct me if I'm wrong but collecting moons per se doesn't make Mario any stronger like it might unlock levels that give you certain power-ups or something like that but it doesn't like make Mario permanently stronger in any way, right? Right. And I just look at a number
0: here from my notes and Odyssey I had two numbers either 999 or 880 uh and I think you just end up with not even 100 when you complete the or 120 maybe. I don't think I remember the exact number but I'm sure it's between 100 and 200. Power moons compared to like 800 or 900.
1: Yeah, the reason I bring it up is to contrast it with Crackdown, which is one of my favorite Xbox 360 games, uh, which is basically a Grand Theft Auto style open world game on the 360, except you are this crazy, uh, I guess technically, well, I, I'm not going to say anything because I think it's a spoiler, but, uh, Ooh. Uh, you are this dude who walks around and the collectible in the game is called the agility orb and when you get agility orbs you jump higher and at a certain point you start jumping comically high and then you're like I have to get 100% just to see how stupidly high this guy can jump when you get all of them and I think like even once you get the last one you, you get like an added bonus to the jump because you got all of them and it's just ridiculously stupid um, but Like, at least then you feel like there's something to chase after by getting all of the collectibles. Like, this game is in on the joke, and I have to go to the conclusion of the joke with the game by collecting all of these things. Whereas there isn't really necessarily a payoff in Mario or in Zelda to collecting all of these things. It's really just, well, I did it. Congratulations, me. I have the biggest number. However, this realization that exploration is a good fit for lower focus activities and uh, handheld games just makes me even more excited for Metroid Prime 4, because Metroid Prime was an extremely exploration-focused first-person shooter, which made it very different from other stuff that came out. In fact, Nintendo, when it was released, was very careful never to call it a first-person shooter. They were always calling it first-person adventure. And if Metroid Prime 4 lives up to expectations, which, let's be honest, it probably won't, so whatever, let <laughs> me dream. But Metroid Prime 4 could be a fantastic Switch game if they just get it right.
0: Whoa, 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 Do I hear what I just heard? Are you saying that it would be a
1: good reason to buy a Switch? No, I just said it would be a good Switch game. Ugh! I also think that this summer is going to be the moment where people realize that they have been saying all of this time, I want to play Dark Souls on a handheld, I want to play Dark Souls on a handheld, and they're going to realize you don't fucking want to play Dark Souls on a handheld, because it requires way too much focus, and you're going to die even more than you did before when you were playing on PC or console, when you're playing on a handheld, surrounded by, like, a bunch of kids who are crying. So, have fun, Switch owners, go buy Dark Souls Remastered this summer. And tell me how much you love it. But joking aside, like, I, I do want to know, like, what you think about my theory in general, and if you think it stands up, if you think I'm being too negative on the Switch, whatever, uh, because that's all I have for this episode. Uh,
0: like with everything with you, uh, it's a bit of both. So, uh, what I would say is, I think you are right, but also a bit too negative on the Switch. And you know what? I'll use two examples, and they are from Friend of the Show. Digital Foundry, oh my god, I had only oh, DF wow. in my head. I, I was all worked up, like, who is he going to name? I know, I know. I, the problem is I only had DF, and I was like, it's a so daring for all I want to say. But uh, Digital Foundry, and recently, I think it's last week, they had two videos that was really nice that were about Switch games. Do you recall what they were?
1: I was too busy moving, so no.
0: Okay, that's okay. Uh The first one was about Captain Toad coming to... The Switch, and 3DS, which is the version I'm buying, <laughs> and 3DS, that's true. Which that the, it is the one I don't understand, but that's okay. There was two two other videos that were uh, recently on Digital Friday that was on that topic of bringing Wii U games to the Switch. Uh, so, how does Nintendo bring bring this two screen experience of the Switch of the Wii U to the Switch? And Captain is really interesting because it assumes that you can see. The Wii U board and the screen at the same time and you can uh, draw on one of those screens and uh, part of the review from Digital they is saying that uh, the way you handle that in dock mode is not ideal because it, use the ac- it uses the accelerometer of any switch remote or switch controller uh, to just have a pointer on the screen so here is is really my opinion, not opinion but one argument that says like you need people always think about the nl experience which is the part i agree with you especially about the switch the part where i don't really agree with you about that and i think i know it's a lot about your negativity about the switch is wolfenstein is coming to the switch i'm sure you've seen that
1: yes i yes. don't see how this is relevant
0: i i it might not be relevant but it is relevant to me so uh sadly i won't play it on the Switch because. These games are on deal right now on the PS Store. Yeah, I cost you a
1: lot of money this (laughs) week.
0: No, it's past me that costing me a lot of money because oh, okay. I put too much game in my wishlist. Um. Uh, but they're not bought yet, so right now it costs me $0, so that's okay.
1: Just to fill in the listeners, Luc Adivier's wish wishlist consists of more PS4 games than I have purchased in the last two years that he wants to buy all at once during the summer sale on PlayStation well, Store.
0: no. My idea is to buy some now at the beginning and wait until the end and maybe the last day buy the some other part. And it is. It's only four games, but Yannick is right. I had a wish list of nine games. Oh, let's put it to six, uh, to seven, eight. Because I'm there's two that I'm unsure about them. But out of those nine games, there are six games at on discount at sixty percent off because of PSN Plus. So and because of the deal, it's so right now the deal is fifty percent and then blah, blah blah. So go. All of this is to say, go on the PSN store. Go. Uh, after this episode though.
1: Mm, but I I went to the BSN store and then I looked at my free hard drive space and I was, all of these games on my hard drive are games I haven't beaten yet. Maybe I should beat a few of them before I buy more. Okay, n- n-
0: let's close this tangent here. <laughs> you, I do agree with you, but there's a lot of games I want to play that aren't there. And you're happy because I'm reminded of stuff I will buy this year that I could do on a future episode, but that's some spoilery stuff. Mm-hmm. But my point about Wolfenstein 2 on the Switch is... The switch demonstrate that more powerful and, or a kind of a first, uh, I don't know how to put it, but the, uh, like a, a console that comes out of a, the com- the main console from a manufacturer of video games that is endel focus. as some leeway here in North America compared to what others were thinking in the past. Yes, there's downsides and. The main ones are performance, uh, quality of graphics, that's the main two ones. But Nintendo is aiming hard and it seems that more and more current gen video games developer believe that they should invest on the Switch because of that. Because the Switch shows that there's a market for, I would say a first priority, let's call it this, a first priority NL console from a video game, a video game console maker. And they're starting to show it by bringing current gen games, if possible, with a lot of downsides quality-wise, performance-wise. Uh, if we take the example of Shine 2, the quality is not perfect, especially because it's kind of a, even if it's a like first-person shooter, the quality of the like the faces of the characters. It's it's a well-made game for that, and uh, it runs at 60 FPS on the best consoles out there on the PC. On the Switch it as well, it's trying to a thirty, but it's not
1: able to in some places. That's the story of a lot of third party ports to the Switch. It's like, yeah, we are a constant twenty four frames per second. <laughs>
0: True. But what I've started to realize is, okay, peep I would say people don't care. And it's not that they don't care, I think is the fact that they can play the oddest game right now that are available either on there. Like at this point, the, the oddest game right now on the market is also available on your iPhone, on your Android phone. Uh, the fact that they are also able to play that on the Switch, it talks to people. Like a, a lot of such users, it talks to them. And it seems that we see some, uh, maybe only to say that. Uh but it feels to me that we see those game developers see some successes about bringing those ports uh to the Switch. And that is a major win for Nintendo compared to their other consoles, but also compared to the others, their competition and their strategy, which is right now focusing on the home console market, which, like you've said in, pre- in a lot of previous episodes about our discussion about video games, the Ohm console market is more North American focus, or at least Western focus.
1: What I think is particularly interesting about like the majority of Switch owners I see out there is I see a lot of people who skipped the PS3, 360, whatever generation, who don't own a PS4, who don't own an Xbox One, who basically migrated from 3DS to Switch, and now they basically have this compromised home system that is also a handheld. And, like, there's this parody account on Twitter that probably everybody has seen, uh, which is, like, put everything on Switch, which is literally, like, (laughs) it grabs a random game from a game database, and it posts, I can't believe they're not releasing blah 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 on Switch yet, come on, name of company, or whatever, and it's, like, another one every hour, and there's ridiculous ones, like, put Dance Dance Revolution 4th Mix Plus on Nintendo Switch, come on, like, it's a game from 1999, nobody's gonna port that over, but um yeah There, like there's this bot for a reason and that is like switch owners are incredibly passionate about the games that come out on their system and i think a lot of that is because they missed out on a lot of gaming and they want lots of ports of games that are already out because they never got to play them uh i think you see a lot of like vita refugees which bought switches because now the vita's gone and they want a new handheld to replace it and i think they're not necessarily in the wrong, particularly if they were interested in indie games because Vita had a lot, a lot of uh, indie game support. And now all of that seems to be going towards an Indies program, which is on switch. Um, so there are captive, uh, compelling reasons for 3ds and switch owners, uh, 3ds and Vita owners to migrate to switch, especially if they don't have an existing console, because now they can basically get the best of both worlds for the price of one system. And that's cool. Um, yeah it's,
0: it I sounded that like you kind of made my argument again, which I
1: like by the way. I'm just, like you but said that the word like, that I said is compromise, and true. That's sort of where I'm going with this episode is I said at the beginning, like, um, I'll scroll back to the actual thing. I said, like, does the promise of the PSP Vita, and Nintendo switch ultimately lead to worse games? Well, str- strictly speaking, yes, they are worse because they are compromised.
0: Okay, no, uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, like, uh,
1: uh, on that, like, you can also say, like, yes, you can say the same thing about PS4 games relative to the PC, which is fine. People can make their decisions as to whether or not they're willing to accept the compromises. But I think, like, putting aside the questions of graphics and performance, which, personally, like, that compromise is more of a problem to me than anything else on the Switch, because I feel like I own a PS4, I can get better versions of all of these games on PS4 already. And this is too big for me to consider to be an actual handheld. So it would still just be a home console for me anyway. Like I I don't really see the switch as a handheld because it's too big. Um, So, so, That's more of a hardware design issue. Yeah, because uh, if you compare it to an iPad, it's just a thicker
0: iPad that is. Yeah, but that's why.
1: Don't bring my iPad with me either.
0: (laughs) Uh, That that. uh, But you know what? And I think nowadays, and I think we're we're going back to one of our previous discussions about bigger phones. I think people are just used to those bigger slab of glass in their pockets, and that's why I think it gave the opportunity to Nintendo to redefine what is an home console slash an NL. And that's why I think right now they are in a good posture to be better than Sony at bringing a world where you have an amazing home console and performance-wise, let's be honest, and a kind of shitty uh, NL device. Uh, I know PSP is loved by a lot of people. I'm not saying it's bad, but if you compare it with the hardware and then if you were to put that on a scale where you have the PSP on the left and the PS4 Pro on the right, I still tend to think that the Switch is completely in the middle. It's not too much on the left, not too much on the right. It's a set of compromises to meet the right ones to go into that vision where you have the games where you play at home, they're a bit more performant because the Switch can get more power out of itself when it's on the dock and on uh, power all the time and when it's it's in your end on the battery power uh, we all know with all of our phones that battery these days uh, they are at, the, at the limit of the technology and they just like work with that compromise um, so if the time you want to have better performance and enjoy the true maybe true vision of that game at maximum performance you play it on dock but you have the opportunity to just slide it out, no reboot, no nothing. you just slide it out of the dock and then you go on with life and That's to me is it is talking a bit to me, but I think to a lot of people it's talking even more to them, and I see I think that's why it's making it so successful and that's why also it makes me cry about all of the money I spent on my vita, thinking that the Vita would be that because hardware wise I think the Vita was a great side it was great. Uh, It was on a great trajectory to do that, but sadly failed miserably.
1: Well, Sony pulled support for its own software on the Vita before people even really bought into the Vita, which is what's sad about it. Like, they made one game, really, Gravity Days, uh, or Gravity Rush, it was called in North America, which was an amazing game that no one bought because nobody knew the IP and it was on Vita too early. And then they made the sequel on PS4, and they said, no, we're done with Vita, and they never actually really gave it a chance with first-party titles and all that stuff. But uh, ignoring all of what we were just talking about... No, but no,
0: you're you're making a good point here, is with the Vita, Sony gave up early, and... Nintendo can't give up now, because it's their only console. (laughs) They can't give up now, but if you see when they started with the success of the Wii, then tried to bring that bridge with the Wii U... And then failed miserably with the Wii U. And then went back to the drawing board and came up with the Switch. I think what I, what was successful about the Wii U is it let all of the Nintendo game developers just have fun with all of the Nintendo's IP. And making sure they still built amazing games that hopefully could be easily ported to the new system. It seems that with the... Like, with the current 2018 releases, Nintendo is not bringing new games to Switch. It's just bringing back old games that people should enjoy on the Switch. And because the Switch is kind of the culmination of their, like, perfect console, let's put it this way, that's why they bring all of those games. And those games has been designed thinking that a replacement to the Wii U was also coming. That's kind of the vibe
1: I get these days about For, the Switch. First of all, if I was a Wii U owner who bought a Switch and then they spent all 2018 re-releasing games that I already own on the Wii U, I would be pretty pissed because I want new shit. Like, uh, there's a lot of True. games in there that I that are sort of evergreen. Like uh, Melee, uh, not Melee. Shit, don't don't <laughs> at me, bros. Uh, Super Smash Ultimate. Sorry. Um, wow, what a lapse. Oh friend. my god, I'm gonna get so much hate mail. Uh, Smash Ultimate, which is absolutely in no way related to Melee at all and is a shit game. Uh, no, it's not a shit game, but it's it's pretty good. Um, like, Smash Ultimate, like, that's understandable. Like, everybody wants Smash on whatever Nintendo console is available because, like, no one is going to say no to playing Smash, basically. Um, but I, I think there's only Mario Maker that's left in sort of the... Oh, evergreen man. games that need to come out on switch like it needs to come out on that switch. shit came out on 3ds for and it's like a crazy horrible version of it on 3ds and they need to make like a real switch version like that might even be more compelling than anything else that they could they could release on switch to make get me to buy one um, yeah i mean good
0: to see your quick review of captain told on the 3ds because uh what was the oh yes uh the i will what's the fighting games with the fighter game with Sell with the link and everything. Hyrule is- Warriors.
1: It's not a fighting game, but I know what you mean.
0: Yes, I know. I know it wasn't a fighting game, but it's.
1: Exactly. It's a game what where you fight, that- but it's not a fighting game.
0: <laughs> What's the genre of that type of game then?
1: Warriors? Dynasty Warriors games? Thank you. That type of game.
0: This one also got re- released uh, on the Switch and the 3DS at the same Oh, it was 3DS first and then Switch.
1: Yeah, let's not talk about the 3DS version because it's very, very bad. <laughs> very very bad yes it's also new 3ds only i think uh no it just runs better Uh well, it no, doesn't run it's... better i can tell you that it runs like shit everywhere but <laughs> okay yeah it, it
0: runs it's less shitty on the new 3ds i that think it's the same thing right. with Cap, captain toad too
1: no captain toad is apparently runs exactly the same on both
0: oh okay then i misremembered that from the,
1: the df video but yeah like we're, we're talking a lot about like hardware compromises and performance compromises yet the entire episode I spent the time arguing about game design compromises, not so much technical compromises. And I think that's really the thing that is going to distinguish like the five star switch games from the three star switch games is can this game be played optimally in all situations that switch games can be played. And I think a lot of people are going to face weird decisions about their games that they didn't think they would have to make because everybody has always had this idea in their head that it would be super great to have exactly the same game in two places. They just never actually paid any attention to what made handheld games different from console games in terms of the actual game design that made some games tolerable in one environment and not tolerable in another. And now we're becoming more aware of those things. Like I think like Dark Souls is the ultimate example because it is the kind of game that you've really want to be focused to play because that is sort of the entire point of the game
0: <laughs> yeah odyssey is a bit like that too because uh i would say that it it is an amazing game when you play in a portable mode but when you play in dark mode you can use the the wii u the wii and wii u style gesture with the remotes and the controllers and even playing with the pro controller it's nice but to me Odyssey with the uh, controller gestures
1: is the way to go. As expected from a fan of Super Mario Galaxy. <laughs> oh, yo, yo,
0: yo, yo. You really Sick want me. To, yes. Yes, you really want me to uh, rage quit this episode.
1: Oh, yo, yo, yo. yo. You can't rage on quit.
0: Our, on our last episode before the hiatus because you're going away for in Japan. The
1: cliffhanger <laughs> ending. Will there, could you be yeah. back on the next episode? You know, the question is maybe Yannick
0: won't be back. Oh, and I'll shit. just be. Here alone, crying on oh, myself, or not, so everything that he is gone and cannot do sink burn, because wow. one day you realize that Super Mario Galaxy is the best one. I'm not oh, thinking it's the God. best one. I, I'm not thinking it's the best one, just making any cringe.
1: You're really lucky that I didn't get into a huge war this morning, because PC Gamer made this tweet, which said, what is the most unpopular opinion you have about video games and everybody was quote tweeting it with all of their nonsense and i thought of course i had the worst one because i was going to say you could delete the n64 from gaming history and nothing of value <gasps> would be lost
0: whoa and whoa, i probably whoa, would have whoa, lost whoa, like whoa. half my
1: followers if that happened what
0: oh my goodness
1: oh. i'm going to do it right now hang on oh right, no to don't tweet do bot. that tweet don't bot. do that seriously i'm, I'm shit, already this pissed is the old at
0: you Oh, see? Oh my goodness. You want the golden i64 to disappear?
1: Yes. I want all of the N64 what games to disappear because they're kind of monster bad. are you? Oh my goodness. Search PC gamer. I'm happy
0: that, I'm happy that I have your N64 now. Because at yes, least somebody you saved will it make... from
1: abusive family.
0: <laughs> yes. But it's kind of. I don't know why, but I don't. But small tangent on the N64. Uh, I don't know, that's mine now. Yeah. Long story short, is the next the N64 I have here in Montreal, uh, I cannot get video out anymore. No get sounds. I, I hope that the cable is bad and not the plug. But if the N64 uh, input is bad, I'll cry a lot.
1: Okay, let me tell you this tweet. The N64 could be deleted from gaming oh, history and nothing of value would be lost. Send tweet. Oh, oh my goodness.
0: Are you planning to end this episode on that? yes oh Oh, no no oh my goodness you know what okay let's end this because i'm super pissed right now
1: i feel like one of my friends who speed runs wave race 64 is going to be very mad at me i hope i hope he's going to be mad oh my
0: goodness they should be really mad oh my goodness seriously (laughs) banjo kazooie my friend banjo fucking kazooie was on the yeah that game hasn't aged well still oh my goodness the N64, it's my child's love. Like, that was my console when I was younger.
1: When I was, a ch- uh,
0: yeah, when I was a child, that was my console. Oh my goodness.
1: Like, I, we could do a whole episode about hating on the N64, but <laughs> no, no, I think no, no, a no. lot of people are clinging to the nostalgia of the N64. But aside from a few games that were historically notable, everything on it is unplayable in 2018.
0: You're lucky. You are lucky that for at least a couple of few days, I still don't know where exactly where is in your apartment.
1: Yes, I'm also really lucky that everyone on my timeline is at Anime Expo and not paying attention to Twitter right now.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: You know what? And that's done. It's done.
0: No outro, <laughs> I'm, I'm no rage nothing. quitting this podcast. Yes. yes, exactly. So if you want to send a shit ton of rage tweets to Yannick, or follow-up, or eight mails, you should email Yannick. Oh, tweet we should
1: you. mention, because we forgot to do it during follow-up. We are going away for yes. a month <laughs> oh no 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 i'm doing that section come on
0: <laughs> right now you see Yanit put this like just drop this bomb like oh my god we're gone for a month oh my god <sighs> so you have a month to send him all of the anger email the hate email he'll deserve it during his trip seriously I, oh my goodness but
1: yes i'm going to be so mad at the episode when we come back is an n64 love episode <laughs> Oh, I think I should do that. Seriously. Oh, after your stay-
0: I should make that a love episode. I should, you know what? Go in like, uh, all the used market and find all of the N64 game and just play them for the next month to make sure that I can do review them. You know what? I'll do Swang Song, but for the N64. just That exists
1: already, unfortunately. I'll Jeremy do it again. Parrish is doing it. Okay. Sure.
0: And you know what? Then if it, if there's somebody that does it, I'll send you a video every day. <laughs> okay. And I'll find a way to force you to watch them. And on that note, this was sadly episode 93. It ended on a bad note. And you have only Yannick to blame. No, you, you, not as usual. You only have well, to blame. for my episodes. Oh, yo, yeah, yo, yeah, yeah. So if you want to find the show notes that does not include Yannick's outrageous comments, <laughs> you can go on our website at limitlesspossibility.net slash 93. Because this is billions 93. Uh, we should be back in end of August. Because uh, Yannick is going in Japan for three weeks? Two weeks? Yeah. Three weeks. Three weeks.
1: Got so, my yen today. Yes.
0: So you have three weeks to think about all the shit he said in this episode. Hopefully you will regret it. While we're away, if you want to listen at our back catalog of episode. Where Yannick said stupid shit. You can go on net. And hopefully it's the only episode where it talks bad about the N64.
1: We've done it before. Really? Yeah. Oh my goodness. You just erased it from your mind because you couldn't imagine the fact that someone would say anything bad about the N64.
0: Yes. If you want to complain to Yannick about the N64 saying that he's wrong, you can find him on Twitter. Where do you find Yannick on Twitter?
1: Sakurina, S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A.
0: And yes, I did it not in order because I wanted your Twitter to be first. Oh, I got my
1: first reply. (laughs) Oh
0: my goodness. If you want to say that I'm right, you can follow me on Twitter at at atluconosh, that's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And to know when we'll be back officially... Uh, with the exact date in August you can follow this show at Limipo underscore podcast that's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast and please send your feedback to Yannick on Twitter not on the Limipo podcast please at Sakura. and we'll see you in
1: August have a great summer have a great summer everyone playing N64
0: games yes yes
1: nope oh my goodness